Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me on the Business Leadership Podcast. This is episode 38 with Steve Woods, the CTO and co-founder of Nudge AI. I'm so excited to share this conversation. Not only does Steve share his experience and journey of growing his current business, Nudge, but also provides insight of his 13-year career of growing Eloqua from zero to $100 million in sales. In our conversation, we talk about measuring relationships, both with customers, employees, and stakeholders. We take a deep dive into removing your own cognitive biases when it comes to leadership and running your life in something he calls debug mode. Without giving anything away, I want to get started by thanking my media partners, IT World Canada, Startup Canada, for the support of the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey, Steve, welcome to the Business Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, Steve, why don't I just get you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you like to do when you're not leading and, and growing businesses. Sure. So uh, my history in, in tech goes back a few years. Uh, I think that the best place to start would be a company that I did for, for about 13 years called Eloqua in the marketing automation space. Uh, we started that in... Uh, right at the beginning of 2000, so market timing clearly is not my forte, but we grew that uh, from from 2000 through to the uh, beginning of 2013, sold that to Oracle. Uh, so so really had a fun ride building a business from from nothing, really being one of the early pioneers in the SaaS uh, delivery model back then, uh, and, and really sort of working through that. And, and really seeing the transformation enabled through technology of, of the marketing space. It went from a very sort of creative arts and crafts kind of discipline um, to one that was very measured, very disciplined, very process and data oriented. Uh, and I was able to play a part in, in that through Eloqua uh, as, as that discipline transitioned. So it really sort of developed a love for uh, technology but not technology for the sake of technology, technology for the sake of, of really breaking apart a business and, and understanding it and kind of rebuilding it in a new way. Oh, no, that's great. And we'll definitely take a deep dive in your experience of growing Eloqua. Um, but why don't we start off with your current role now, Steve? Tell us a little bit about Nudge AI. Let us know what your current role is and perhaps what, what you or the company is trying to accomplish over the next 6, 12 months. Sure. So Nudge AI is a, a platform for salespeople that sell through relationships. And I think uh, relationship-based selling is one of those interesting challenges where it, it at first appears kind of ultimately unmeasurable. What it, What is trust? What is a relationship? It's very hard to, hard to sort of get a, a lens on what that is and how you'd measure it and then how you'd build it. And what we've done with Nudge is really kind of two parts. We've developed a way to, to measure the relationships of, of a person and then more importantly of the rest of the team around them. And by doing that, we can really get a lens on a, on a sales cycle from a new perspective. We can say, well, is there enough 
relationship history here? Is there enough trust here? Are we building relationship with, with the right people? And if not, what would we need to do to rectify that situation? What relationships do we need to build more of? Which do we need to deepen? Which accounts do we need to go broader in? And ultimately, if you think about this from the perspective of a, of a VP of sales, looking at a quarter and saying which deals are actually going to close, understanding pipeline through that lens and rather than listening to fairly happy eared salespeople saying, um, yep, I, I've got this one, this deal's absolutely going to close, being able to look at that and say, well, it kind of looks like you don't have the right relationships with the decision makers, with the folks in finance, with the economic buyers. Why are you so confident that it's going to close? And through that, really get a better understanding of of where their pipeline is and is not at and what actions they need to take to make sure that that pipeline closes. Uh, so it's a really interesting challenge to to take something that is both fundamental and, and also very difficult to measure. And by using technology and using AI, get deep on that and say, hey, there's there's a new way of tackling selling. We're not saying don't build relationships. We're saying understand how your team is building relationships and see where there's risk in those in those deal profiles and see what you would need to do in order to make sure that those deals all uh, progress through to, to close in a more effective manner. Talking about relationships and how people grow them within the platform, I guess, from a VP of sales point of view or through that lens, you could really see how relationships grow between some of the prospect organizations or, or or quarter over quarter, I assume. So if I were the VP of sales, I'd say, oh, listen, it looks like you guys are actually growing your relationship strength with so-and-so company. That's amazing. And maybe if you continue, it's like that. So that person's able to pinpoint that that relationship strength and the weaknesses, I, I, I assume. Yeah, I think I think if you look at one of the big challenges in any business to business sales organization it's it's that classic challenge of of end of quarter deal slippage you, you get there you're talking with your internal sales team these deals are looking great we're going to close them end of quarter comes and goes yeah it just it slipped out it's still looking good but the deal slipped and if you peel back that onion and say well what happens in all of those deals that that happens to every sales organization and in almost every one the sales team just wasn't deep enough. They didn't ask the hard questions of the head of finance on whether they were actually going to apply money to this project. They didn't get high enough in the organization they were selling to. They didn't have a broad base of users that were bought into the product. They they had one person that, that really was liking it and was passionate and, and said the right things and was really hopeful, um, but they hadn't done their work as a, as a salesperson. And I think as a, as a, as a VP of sales, you're, you're challenged in those situations if all you're doing is asking your internal team how they think the deal is going versus looking at the data and saying, well, do we have the right relationships? Have we gone high enough? Have we gone deep enough? Have we asked the tough questions? And if you don't do that, you're going to have that eternal problem of deal slippage because you're relying on on a salesperson saying, oh, I, I got this. This is this is for sure a deal that's going to close. And in so many of those cases, they have not done the work. They have not found the objections. And that is not a deal that's going to close. Well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds really great. And I know I was an early user and I'm really glad 
you and your organizations working on this problem. I mean, relationships is great. And, and I'm really excited to see where it grows and where it, where it uh, continues to blossom as well as being sort of in the infancy stage of AI and in that technology. I'm sure you're, you're sitting on the forefront there, Steve, in terms of what's, what the capability is. And, and I'm sure every day you're looking at new opportunities as well. Absolutely. I mean, AI is such an interesting topic. If you, if you sort of get below the hype, um, of of sort of you know the the Hollywood version of it with with sentient robots walking around. I mean maybe we head to, to that future eventually, but um, what's here today is a set of very interesting tools that do a good job of essentially pattern recognition, um, and that set of tools enables a new set of problems to be tackled. Um, there's things that it can do well. There's things that it can't do well, and I think if you're if you're honest with yourself, if you're kind of ruthless with what is possible, what do people actually need, what are people going to pay for, what's really going to work um, versus what what might work well in a demo but would fail in the real world, you can take this this kind of new toolkit of AI and, and apply it in in ways that actually tackle real and interesting business problems. So Steve, what's really fascinating for me sitting here doing this podcast is, is really taking Taking the business leader back, because uh, it's really fascinating to hear some of the stories, the personal challenges that helped you transform yourself to to who you are when it comes to business leadership today. So when I look back at your career, I did my homework. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you started as a process engineer. You were a software developer. And you did some consulting before, before starting uh, Eloqua. So I'd love for you to share, if you can, some key turning points that you encountered that, or even decisions that you had to make that eventually helped you grow as a leader? Absolutely. I, I think for me, if I look at the the arc of my career to date, I, I've always been a bit of a bridge between two worlds. Uh, I'm, I'm a technologist, but not a particularly good one. Um, and I dabble in, in sort of the business marketing sales customer side of the house, but again, not at that much depth. And, and I think I, I form a bit of a bridge between those two worlds. And that's allowed me to, to carve out a, a little piece of, of, of what I'm able to do and what I'm able to contribute. Uh, and I think for me, the learnings going along were always um, the, the points at which that communication uh, break down, the points where folks that are not technologists uh, misunderstand, over-understand, under-understand what is possible with technology and, and vice versa. The, the folks where uh, the technologists um, misunderstand or misrepresent or, or are unable to, to sort of wrap their heads around what real-world users are actually trying to tackle, what they're actually trying to do, um, and how they would or would not use a, a new widget in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a um, there's a picture that gets painted of this sort of this understanding that that comes forth and this magical solution and how it changes the lives of of the people that are using it. Um, and I think that makes for really great marketing paraphernalia. It makes pitches at, at conferences, um, but doesn't really reflect reality of, of what people truly find useful. Um, and, and I think for me, a lot of the learnings have really been sort of those those moments of insight where you, you sort of, you see 
how people create and, and then digest technology um, and, and realize what they're doing there is um, very different from what they say they're doing and what they what they believe that they're doing in a lot of cases. And I think as a as a technology leader, if you're able to understand kind of what what people's perception of what they're doing is and how that differs for what they're actually doing, you're you're able to thread a little bit of a different course in terms of what you're able to build for them and and how that makes them successful in their in their daily lives. So so let me ask you this, Steve. When throughout your career, I mean, you started as a software developer, you were doing processes and you being that communications bridge between what can and cannot be done with technology. Do you, can you remember maybe an aha moment when you were like, Oh, we're designing this, but our, our clients are actually doing it this way. Was that happening earlier in your career or maybe perhaps when you're growing and scaling Eloqua? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I think. I started by fighting against that that realization. I, I started by convincing myself that I could I could force that reality not to be true. And I remember as we were growing Eloqua, there, there was this there was this wonderful vision that we would paint for people of of how they could kind of transform their interaction with with buyers. Um, and you know, people really bought into that vision they in the sales process they they wanted it they they understood it they saw what that would do to their organization and and, and that was very positive and then we'd have sales demos and and we demo um these beautiful um visions of what the product could do kind of those those magical moments in the product demo where you just see it all come together and it's all on the screen there in front of you and you can envision yourself as a user clicking that button and and, and really sort of turning the dial on the the marketing um, within your organization and then i'd look at what people were actually doing and it was none of that <laughs> it was this incredibly trivial use case it just did some basic stuff um and and I, I fought against that, and I thought, you know, we, we've got to get these users to this to this land that we have promised them. And I think we sort of we beat ourselves up, and we also beat our users up a little bit, not allowing them to celebrate a small success because they hadn't achieved this promised land that we we'd put in front of them. And after a while. I came to realize that that was just how it was. That was reality. That was the reality for every single software product out there. And I I started talking in terms of this this triangle, where the three points of the triangle are this this vision of a future, this kind of marketing reality, this um, essentially a demo reality, this this beautiful sales execution that you can do with a product, and the usage reality. What are people actually going to do day in and day out that makes their lives a little tiny bit better? And I think if you if you think of the transformation that you're trying to make in business through technology, through that lens of a triangle with three three vertices of the triangle that are important, that are different, and that don't necessarily need to become one it gives you a, a very different level of clarity and and we really changed our business at that at that point and we would we would continue with the 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 vision of what a future could look like but when we engaged with users we realized that achieving that vision 
um, was a very, very long process, and it is for every organization. Um, every organization selling technology, the vision that you're out there talking about is very different than the reality on the ground in the customer's organization. And if you can do one thing that makes their day better, if they can do one thing that makes them a better X, where X is a marketer, a salesperson, or a, or a financial modeler, then that is something you should celebrate. You have taken a step on that journey. You have moved from from stage one to stage two. That's amazing. Let's celebrate it. Um, even though stage one and stage two are far away from this vision that we've painted as this distant reality. Uh, and I think embracing that for me was a very kind of profound moment in, in terms of understanding um, the, the, the role of technology, not in people's um, day-to-day lives, but, but just in their career in general, um, that, that need for a vision of a future that they can achieve in a stepwise fashion, even if those steps are small, played such a critical part in, in sort of, if I look back, some of the careers of the people that, that really sunk their teeth into marketing automation and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna be this person. I'm gonna become really good at marketing automation, and I'm gonna start with something small, but I'm gonna be good at that, and then I'm gonna get better and better and better um, as as I grow. And, and we played a core part of that. I think that was very important and, and a good realization. So just moving forward, and I know we talk about Eloqua a lot, and I just really just want to quickly talk about this. I mean, Eloqua grew. You mentioned it from zero to hundreds of millions. I mean, you had you went through a number of VC rounds, it IPO'd, um, and to eventually being acquired by Oracle. So interesting for me and for the listeners is how did you adjust and continually grow as an effective leader throughout throughout the career with throughout Eloqua as well? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I think you go through the phases there, and I think we were very lucky to go from from zero to hundred million in revenue just over a decade. So we, we had enough time in each of the phases to sort of get used to them, if you will, you know, sort of understand the, the culture, understand the, the dynamics of that phase um, and, and sort of become used to it before we sort of blasted through to the next phase. Uh, whereas I think if you, if you sort of blip from zero to a hundred million you, in, in sort of a, a very short period of time, it's just a mad scramble and you don't really understand sort of each phase. Um, every phase is different. And, and I think, Assuming that I adjusted um, effectively and, and quickly and efficiently to each phase is, is probably a, a mistaken <laughs> assumption. Um, you know, one, one does what one can, and I think in hindsight, you, you realize a lot of the stuff that you you learned and learned too late. Um, but you know, by hook or by crook, we managed to to kind of get it there and get it over the goal line. Um, I, I think for me, that the biggest thing that changes is is really the the culture at each level, how you um, how you instill in people in the organization um, what what you are as a company, what your values truly are, not not sort of the pretty pictures and and catchy phrases that you might put on um, posters on the wall, but but what is a real value that you're going to make a decision around? Um, that changes. You know, when you're ten people in a room, you can instill those values in a very different way than. When you're 100 people, when you're when you're 400 people, right? Um, but it's those values and that guidance um, and that way of thinking and that way of making prioritization decisions and and tactical decisions that ultimately becomes the thing that uh, affects customers in the market 
um, in in a way that is is either positive and what you'd hoped or, or negative and, and not what you had hoped. Um, but if you if you don't adjust to the way that that culture kind of manifests itself uh, over time, your your ability to guide that culture uh, really sort of you, you're going to lose your grip on that a little bit. Uh, and be using techniques to guide a culture from from one phase when the company mm-hmm. is already in a second phase. I'm wondering, if, looking back, if there was anything that you could change when it comes to business leadership, of course. Is, is there something that you could have changed? Or, or you look back and you're like, you know what? I could have done it this way. And maybe maybe you're implementing the stuff that you want to change now with your, with your current company. So uh, I'd love to just chat about that. <laughs> sure. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, you look back on 13 years and I mean, there's a, there's a ton of things that, um, that are, that are mistakes, um, that probably are mistakes, um, that you would, you would want to do differently. Um, obviously you, it's such a complex story. You can't really go back and say, I'm going to tweak this one thing, um, because there's so many, there's so many sort of transient effects of that even with mistakes that you you sort of you completely screw up, um, but then they actually have this strange effect later. Like to, to give you one of those on the on the product side with Eloqua, we we originally started as a as a live chat product, you know, with the idea that people were going to kind of come to a website like it was a store, and as a salesperson, your role would transition. This was this was the early two thousand, so forgive the, the ridiculous <laughs> thinking here, but um, you, you'd have that sort of "Hey, can I help you?" kind of mantra. Um, interestingly, in 2017, that's actually kind of come back a little bit with, with sort of intercom and, and products like that. But um, we were trying to do that in 2000, and it was a, it was a complete train wreck. Um, didn't work at all. And so, so yes, that was a mistake. And then we doubled down on that mistake and said, okay, well, let's just get better and better and better at that. And we went really, really deep with web profiling, and we kind of backed into um, – the, the, the marketing side of it to give an understanding of who that individual was on the website so we could tie CRM data to, to web analytics data um, so that you could chat better. Um, you know, this, this whole series of making mistakes and then doubling down on it, um, you know, absolutely that was a mistake. The interesting secondary effect was that then we ended up with this marketing reality where we had sort of accidentally built this deep profiling of online behavior, um, what we were hoping to do was take the online world and, and map marketing data into it. But what ended up happening was we took the marketing world and mapped online behavior into that. And that part became extremely valuable in the core of everything that is marketing automation. So the, the reason why I sort of look at things as such a complex system is you can make these glorious, obvious mistakes. And at the same time, they can sometimes have unintended secondary and tertiary effects that that end up being beneficial in ways that you would never have predicted. So, you know, yeah, we, we made tons of mistakes. I made tons of mistakes the whole way through. Um, but it's very hard to tease out which of those you could remove and, and not have another part of the story kind of change in a way that you hadn't anticipated. Um, so I think, you know, with, with Nudge, we've, we've taken a lot of things – my, my co-founder on Nudge and, and some of the senior team here is 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 ex-Eloqua. Um, and, and we've shifted a lot of what we're doing to, to sort of other ends of the spectrum with a, a little bit of sort of a reaction to, to you know, mistakes that we made at, at Eloqua. But at the same time, you, you end up by moving to the other end of the spectrum, you just make a whole crop of new mistakes um, that that are completely fresh and different than the mistake you made before. Um, not, not that they're not mistakes. They're just, they're just, 
all different because you decide to operate at another end of the spectrum. Um, and, and it makes, you know, keeps life interesting and keeps you learning every single day. So, Steve, before before we uh, pressed record, I mean, you mentioned about your leadership thinking. It's a combination of two thoughts, uh, how you could better think uh, and, and remove your own cognitive biases or how you could understand and perhaps influence other people. So I want to get you to share a bit more about how, how, how are you going about removing your own cognitive biases uh, and, and how's that all going? <laughs> I I guess I've got to caveat that by saying I'm not sure I would know <laughs> those cognitive biases or to, to roll right into it. It's going great. Um, you know, I think we're all massively biased creatures in terms of, of, of rational thought. Um, that's, you know, that's been studied. That's been, that's been observed so many times. Um, and, and I think to me, the, the best thing that you can do as, as, as a human, I, I'm going to take this out of the context of leadership because, um, it, yes, it's a key part of leadership, but it's also a key part of humanity mm-hmm. is in, in many ways, um, and I'm going to steal a, a phrase from, I think, um, Raval Navikant, um, you know, run your mind on debug mode, um, to, to steal sort of a developer metaphor and see the reactions that you're having and, and kind of break point there a little bit and say, okay, I, I, I see that I'm having this reaction. Well, what's, what's, let's go up and down the stack a little bit from there. Why, why am I having that? Is, is that reaction because of, because of this, is that reaction warranted? What would have to be true for that reaction to be warranted? What would have to be false for that reaction to be unwarranted? And and you start being able to tease apart the the logical mind from from the intuitive mind. There's there's been you know system one, system two, or monkey mind. So many different metaphors for that. But I think suffice to say, everyone's mind has this intuitive quick reaction style and it has a, a, a nice thin layer of, of kind of logical calmer thought and if you run your mind on debug mode and, and you dissect some of those innate intuitive reactions you can start teasing out areas where you're like i i, I can see why i had that reaction and i can challenge whether i should have had that reaction and i can change what i want to do about it and not take the action that my immediate reaction would would have guided me towards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, d- does that end up at a state of perfection? Absolutely not. But but it gives you an observation of your own cognitive biases, uh, and it gives you a moment to kind of think about why you're having those cognitive biases and, and whether you want to to go down that path or not. So I mean, really, it sounds like a lot of. And and I love the metaphor of debugging to run on debug debug mode and and having that uh, that that automatic self-awareness and seeing what's happening. And, and as you're growing nudge, I mean, it's a second, your second company that you're growing. How have you taken a lot of those leadership and, or have you improved in terms of influencing others? Because 13 years ago, you might be a whole different person in terms of how you're leading now. Absolutely. I think, I think one of the things that, that I found at least comes out of that is if you, if you look at that sort of, running your mind on debug mode and you imagine yourself in the scenario of you're interacting with, with another person on, on some topic that, you know, is, is of some importance. Um, and they say something and, and you have a reaction 
And if you're not running your mind on debug mode, you, you just roll into that reaction and you say something. And then, you know, they take from that what they're going to take from that. And if you if you pause, if you break point right there and you say, okay, they've said this. My reaction is X and, and X is probably negative at that point. Well, what's going on? And, and you go up the stack. Well, well, why did they say that? Oh, well, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. They said that because they're feeling this. And mm-hmm. if I say that, well, that's actually going to cause them to become even more negative about the thing that they were negative on. Well, why are they looking to me to have a reaction? Oh, well, this is interesting. Let's let's kind of go into this area. Oh, well, they they're thinking about their own worth as an individual. They're thinking about their own career. They're thinking about where they are in 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 two years. Um, they're lashing out because they you know had a fight with somebody at home. You know, could be all of these reasons. And suddenly you, you sort of you bubble back from your own innate reaction that somebody told you something negative, and and suddenly it's like, well. Do I care? Okay, my innate reaction is to throw back something at them. Well, turns out that doesn't achieve anything at all in any scenario that that I was able to come up with while in debug mode here. Mm-hmm. So so maybe I'll react in a different way that doesn't feel sort of as innately good as my initial flip anger reaction, but maybe it allows me to tease out why they initially threw that thing at me. Maybe it allows me to tease out where they were going with it. Maybe it allows me to tease out, you know, did they actually mean what it seemed like they meant? Um, and and by doing that, suddenly you you uncover this view on the world that is from the other person's lens. And in, in doing so, if you understand a little bit more about what their lens is on the world, you can understand a little bit more about what you might say that would guide and modify their lens on the world. And, and to me... You know, leadership is is really all about understanding what is going to cause another person to to take a certain action, um, and and to do that without understanding their lens on the world is is to do that fairly blindly. I mean, that's great, and, and it sort of segues into some of the things uh, you and I talked about in terms of the people or the leaders or, or the mentors that that you look out to, and one of them that you mentioned was Steven Pinker and how the brain works. And and it, and it's really great that how you're talking about really understanding how people and how reactions are happening. So I'm really interested to know, I've never read or looked into his work. Um, if you could share what, what else you've learned from, from, from him, from Steven Pinker when it, in turn, when it talks about how the brain works. Yeah, so much. I mean, he's, a, he's a brilliant thinker and a brilliant writer um, on, on the brain. And, and I think from, from reading his stuff, you realize that the, the brain is, is just such a fascinating organism. And, you know, to, to give one example that uh, kind of coming back to that topic of, of sort of your reactions and what your verbal and your nonverbals cues do, if you're viewing that from the lens of somebody else, words matter so much. And what words are doing is instilling images and instilling um, emotions and instilling kind of metaphors and visualizations in another person's brain. And and so that's a that's both a, a deeply profound thing and a very lossy communication channel. I, I have a set of words in my head, I say them, 
um, they are not going to translate to the same set of words and images and metaphors in your head. And and in one of his books, I think it was The Stuff of Thought, um, Pinker goes really deep into this, the concept of swearing. And, you know, we all swear, and I'm going to do it on your podcast. I'm not quite sure what the what the audience tolerance is for that. But um, we're all quite familiar with swearing. And, and if you dig into it, it's such a fascinating thing because, A, the words don't really mean anything too relevant. You know, I might I might be talking about um, excrement, religion, um, uh, procreation. I mean, there's a set of topics that swears generally revolve around, but it's not like those are really that off topic unless I choose a particular set of words to reference them. Well, what? Like now in this. <laughs> Okay, well, this makes no sense whatsoever. And even when you put together the set of phrases that are a swear, um, I, I think, I don't know, as Woody Allen put it in, in, in one of his monologues that, you know, somebody told him to go forth and procreate, but not exactly in those words. <laughs> um, the, the way that we choose to reference these things in a swear matter. So, so suddenly you're sort of stuck in this, like, what is going on? Well, it's all about the sort of emotions behind the image that I am trying to take from my brain and plant in your brain. And each of these swears has built up in everyone's brain a set of kind of meanings and exclamation points behind it that is is really just kind of shared knowledge between all of us. And if I want to insert that exclamation point into your brain, there's a there's a code word for doing that, and that is a swear. And it's a really interesting way of thinking because you can you can use that selectively to say i would now like to emphasize this point with this emotion and i'm going to use that swear mm-hmm. but if you don't if you don't necessarily know what you're doing then you're you're kind of like the teenager that's throwing emotions and and emoticons and and exclamation points on everything that they write and they very quickly lose any form of ability to transmit meaning um sorry long complete um tangent diatribe there but for me, Pinker was all about understanding what is language and, and why are we using language and how does the language that we select affect the emotions and the constructs that end up transmitting to the other person's brain. And, and if you if you think of it from that perspective, y- your ability to, to think in terms of those constructs really changes and, and gives you a different way of thinking about, about talking with other people. I mean, that's great. Thank you for sharing that, um, Steve. I mean, this is stuff that I mean, this topic for me is really fascinating, and I'm really going to look into it and try to read a bit more about it. But uh, just moving on, and it's a question, maybe it's a little more serious or a little less serious. It's more of a fun question. And, and if I were to ask any of your team, your colleagues, maybe some of your peers, what they think the best leadership quality you have, what do you think they would say? <laughs> what do I think they'd say? What do I hope they'd say? Or what do you, or what do you, or what do you know they would say? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go with hope on this one. What, what I, what I try for here and what I hope they would say is, 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 is sort of openness to honest thought. What I really try for with, with the team is kind of detaching the official role that somebody has in an organization from their perceived ability to execute on related tasks. 
Um, and, and, and what I try and do with, with sort of my leadership style is, is sort of use myself as an example of, of, of that flaw. Um, you know, I, I, I officially hold the role of CTO. So I think, you know, for people that, that, you know, just meet me, just join the organization, um, they might think that, you know, with a long history in technology, with the title of CTO, um, that I might know something about the task of building technology. Well, it, it turns out I don't. But if you don't issue and disconnect between perceived reality and actual actual reality, that junior person is going to be like, well, the CTO did this. And, you know, to my untrained eye, it seems to be completely idiotic. Um but it was the CTO, so I can't question it. Well, if I'm successful, what I'm able to do through sort of cultural mechanisms, um, and, and we have a very sort of kind of open, mocking, sort of jovial our, um, our, our engineering organization, is I can kind of point a lot of the laughter at myself um, and, and show that, yeah, I realize I'm a terrible technologist. I realize I, I do a lot of things that... Um, are, are pretty awful in terms of, of, of good engineering practice. And I'm okay poking fun at that, and I'm okay with the team challenging me on it, and I expect the team to challenge me on it. And if I can instill that culture, then a new person joining the team is is able to sort of join in on that culture and say, oh, okay, I got something here that, that Steve wrote originally. Going to have to really work on this one because, you know, it's, it's done badly. Um, which if you don't instill that cultural norm, they're not going to challenge that and, and mistakes will propagate further. And I think by by setting that as a bar, I, I've made it then okay for everyone else on the team to have a set of things that they're they're willing to roll up their sleeves and do, but they're not defensive about their ability to do them well. And and so we can we can open up that, um, that conversation topic and have people, you know, happy to tackle something, but then happy to have someone with expertise come in and do a better job of what they've done. And everyone's happy because the job got done originally. It was a little bit of a hack. It got done. It got out there. And then when we said, hey, let's let's double down on this, it got improved. Um, but But that culture of being able to challenge someone with perceived expertise, but lacking tactical expertise, I think is, is one you've really got to set from a lead leadership perspective and have come all the way down. So I, I, I would hope that that, uh, that message is, is one that is, has kind of come through to the team. So really having a blast, Steve. Thank you for, you know, really diving into some some deep conversations and topics that, that I'm really interested in. But before we end, I'd love to get some final thoughts, observations, or, or ideally some, some type of actionable recommendations that you could share to anyone who is listening that's looking to grow as a business leader, whether it's in technology or not. Sure. I, I would say that the number one thing for me is to work as a leader towards understanding the perspective that a person you're talking to has on the world. What's what's going on in their head, what their motivations are, what they're trying to communicate to you, and how they're interpreting what you're communicating back to them. I think if you can, if you can take that perspective from their side and, and take it very honestly and very realistically, you, you learn so much more about yourself and how you're perceived than if you stay sort of inside your own head and you're you're all caught up in how what you say makes you feel. Um, if, if you're focused internally, 
you're going to say things that make you feel good and and have no effect on the outside world. If you're focused externally, you'll begin to see yourself a little bit more how the world sees you. And by having that lens, you're, you're able to change what you do. You're able to change how you lead. You're able to change how you influence people. And, and that to me is the art of our leadership. Um, it's, it sounds extremely simple just to see the world through other people's perspective, but it's an inordinately challenging task. And, and I don't think anybody perfects that even with a lifetime of, of study. But if there's one thing to study as a leader, it, it would be that. And I would encourage everyone to, to do so. So to close, Steve, please tell us where we can find more information about you, Nudge AI, and anything that, you, that you'd love to share. Sure thing. So uh, nudge.ai is our, is our web presence. And uh, if you're interested in, uh, in sales, I would encourage you to download. We, we will obviously try and upsell you on, on professional and team versions, but uh, there is a, a free product for anyone to use for any period of time. Um, which is a which is a great product, and uh, you can find out how to contact me there. Um, I exist on the web, so all things social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. Uh, and feel free to reach out. Steve, again, thank you for your time and joining us on the Business Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Edwin. It was a pleasure. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to episode thirty-eight of the Business Leadership Podcast with Steve Woods. I really enjoyed my time with Steve. It's so interesting to see how he leads under a thing he calls debug mode. I mean, just questioning everything and finding out where people are are coming from and and, and what they're just trying to accomplish. To learn more about Steve, Nudge, and anything else we talked about, please visit the episode webpage at thebusinessleadership.com slash 038. And again, thank you all for the messages, the tweets. I appreciate you. I appreciate all the comments, the questions, and suggestions. So, of course, keep them coming. Feel free to contact me directly as well via email to edwin at thebusinessleadership.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you again, and until next time, Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.